Okay, good morning everyone. Let's get started. Um, there's been a few times, take my gum out and put it on the pulpit like I normally do. Hopefully I won't forget it this time. It's been a few times in this study where I felt uh, quite unprepared and this is another one of those mornings. This is a, actually, these two chapters are very difficult and um, there's a variety of interpretations here, and uh, I don't think there's any way we can know exactly uh, what this looks like. So I'm going to do my best. I think the best thing to do in those situations is to let Scripture interpret Scripture, because uh, the Scriptures are, they open our understanding, because they come from one author. But I was thinking this morning as we were talking about God's promise to uh, preserve the righteous, to take care of His own. The psalmist said, I have lived a long time and I've never seen the righteous forsaken or His seed left begging bread. In Psalm 5, my, my family and I have been going through the Psalms and we've been trying to study them in a way where we can remember them. We can call them to our mind when specific things uh, come into our lives because the Psalms are a great treasure. Um, I think they're prophetic in the sense that they show us the place, the trials and the sufferings of the remnant of Israel during the very time we're talking about. They're prophetic in that sense. Some of them are prophetic in that they portray the uh, Messiah in both His first and His second comings. But one of the best ways to do that is I've tried to take each psalm and sum it up with either with one word or a simple phrase that we can associate in our mind with that particular psalm. And in Psalm 5, it curiously follows Psalm 4 where the psalmist is restless. He has trouble sleeping at night. Sometimes we have to zoom out and see the bigger context. In Psalm 4, the psalmist is restless. The cure is to commune with his heart, to put out those distractions, to cry out to the Lord, and then go to sleep. The cure for restlessness, the cure for trial sometimes is to sleep. And then in Psalm 5, it's the next morning. Now, what do we do the next morning? Well, when we look at the model set for the psalmist in number 5, he begins the morning by worshiping. Then he asks for deliverance. Then he rejoices. So he worships, then he imprecates against his enemies, and then he rejoices. Psalm 4, in the night, Lord, hear me. Give me rest. Psalm 5, now, what about the next morning? And so we've decided the best way to sum up Psalm 5 is in the morning. In the morning. It's a good thing when you awake, before you put your feet on the ground, to worship God. But a simple prayer. Jesus said that, Not to worry about tomorrow because there's enough evils today to be concerned with. And eventually tomorrow takes care of itself. And that is really the the message here that the psalmist is trying to convey. In the the next morning, it doesn't seem as bad as it did the night before. I'm reminded of the weeping prophet Jeremiah. That God's mercies are new every morning. His compassions fail not great as thy faithfulness. But in this context, the surety that God will preserve the righteous is coupled with the converse. 
the surety that he will also destroy the wicked. And so just as sure as the preservation of the righteous is promised, so is the destruction of the wicked. In fact, for the righteous to be preserved, for the promises made to God's people to be kept, the wicked must be destroyed. And that's what we see here in Revelation 17 and 18. Whether we're talking about two Babylons, whether we're talking one and the same, whether or not we're talking about some description of Roman Catholicism or whether we're looking forward to a literal rebuilding of the city of Babylon. Regardless of any of that, the world system, the system of what brings persecution, trial, and tribulation to the saints will be fully and finally destroyed. And in that destruction, God's promises that the righteous never will be moved are kept. So, God's fulfillment of promise to the righteous necessitates the destruction of the wicked. It's kind of like the relationship between hatred and love. You know, we all, you know, today the, the battle cry is love. It's all about love. There's no place for hate here. And if you disagree with someone, you're a hater or you're a racist. Hate has no place here. Hate no, has no place here. Well, you can't have love without hate, it's impossible. You see, I love little babies, for instance. Therefore, if I truly love little babies, I must hate the butchery of unborn babies in the womb. How can I love children and be okay with abortion? It's the same with God. If God loves those, if He loves His children, He must hate their enemies. And that's what it says here in Psalms. I mean, I taught my children. Let's read here. Psalm 5, 5. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Mm-hmm. You know, we want to say, well, God loves the, hates the sin but loves the sinner. That's not what it says here. And you know what? I taught my children that. And the fools on the media can't do anything about it. The government can't do anything about it. I will teach my children what the Scriptures say. That God hates sin and the sinner. And they can't do anything about it. You liberal people can't stop me from teaching my children God's Word. That's the greatest revenge there is. Now, as I've said once, I'll say it again. God's hatred's perfect. It's not like ours. We can't compare God's love or God's hatred to ours because ours is rooted in selfishness and pride and gain, and lust. It's short-sighted. It doesn't see the whole picture. But guys, sin cannot have an identity apart from the sinner. So just as God loves the righteous, He hates the workers of iniquity with perfect hatred. And His love and preservation of the righteous demands that He destroys the wicked. There was a good godly king in Judah. We've talked about him. King Jehoshaphat. A godly king. But he stumbled when he made an alliance, an alliance of toleration with wicked King Ahab in his house in the northern kingdom. He was tolerant. He was a man of integrity, a man of conviction, just like a lot of pastors today. But he attempted to appease the wicked, just like the church today. And he was met by the prophet, Jehu the son of Hanani, on his way home from that alliance. And he was rebuked. Should you help the ungodly? 
Should you love those that hate the Lord? Therefore, God's wrath is upon you. That doesn't agree with what the spirit of the age bombards us with today. God says here that He hates the workers of iniquity. He will destroy them that speak leasing. The Lord will abhor the bloody and deceitful man. Abhor is an even stronger word than hate. God's hatred of sin and of the sinner is so serious that our only hope, our only salvation is Jesus. See, what makes God unique is that His love is perfect and His hate is perfect. And the perfect solution to that conflict was Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the God-man. Jesus Christ, who became the object of God's hatred upon the sinner and was forsaken by His Father. But then rose up from the dead, just like the psalmist says in in chapter, or not chapter, but Psalm 16, Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, Thou wilt not suffer Thine Holy One to see corruption. We often talk about God... Jesus is the one who can save us to God. Amen. But we need not forget that He's the only one who can save us from God. From His wrath. From His divine hatred. From His justice. And those are the things we see pictured here against the world system that engulfs us all in Revelation 17 and 18. God's vengeance, His wrath, what He says through the psalmist here in Psalm 5 is carried out. The details of how that's carried out are difficult to see from our perspective, but one day they won't be. What we'll see is that every letter of God's Word was fulfilled exactly as it was written. And in that overthrow of the wicked, God keeps His promises to the righteous. Praise God that despite His hatred for sin and the wicked... God is angry with the wicked every day. Psalm 7, 11. How can we deny these things if we call the Bible God's Word? They're not popular, but they're true. These are the things that the great preachers of the great awakenings in American history weren't afraid to preach. And revival broke out. When Jonah went to Nineveh, he didn't preach a little sermonette for Christianettes. He preached 40 days. This wicked city will be overthrown. It was hellfire and brimstone preaching. And the people repented. We need to make sure when we teach the Word of God to our children, we teach what it says. And we don't make excuses for it. Psalm 5, in the morning. In the morning, our trials aren't as bad as they seemed the night before. And we can rest assured that those who have misused us, those who have persecuted us, those who hate the Lord, that it will all be destroyed. He seen, the wicked seem to prosper. But God laughs because He sees that His day is coming. There are two times when God laughs according to the Psalms. Number one, when the kings of the earth actually think they can rule or overrule God in the affairs of this world. God says He laughs. Especially when it comes to Messiah, Psalm 2. The other time He laughs is when the wicked think that they can actually carry what they've hoarded to themselves with them beyond this life. God laughs at that. It says because He sees their day is coming. So when we think about God's faithfulness to the saints, think about it in light of the divine justice that awaits everything that's wrong with this earth today. And let's don't put trust in men. 
I'm thankful for certain things I see when I look at our president, but I'm disgusted at other things I see coming from our Congress. We need to be careful that we don't put trust in a man that can't possibly accomplish true justice and who can betray every one of us on a dime like so many have done before. It's better to put trust in the Lord than confidence in a man. And we can do that not just with God's promises, but what ultimate deliverance which necessitates the eradication of the wicked. And one day we can look forward to that. Revelation 17 and 18 are one of a few of what we've already seen here in the book. What I would call an aside or a parenthesis. Now, you have the narrative that advances chronologically. We have the opening of the scroll, the seven seal judgments, which is the first half of the tribulation. Then as the seventh seal is opened, that is the seven trumpet judgments. We're getting into the last half of the tribulation. And then with the seven vials, that is the seventh trumpet. We're literally at the very end. We've got judgments falling one after another in very quick succession. The seventh uh, vial judgment we talked about last week. A literal stoning for blasphemy from heaven. The Bible says that the punishment in ancient Israel for blasphemy was stoning. Men blaspheme God. The men of the earth blaspheme God at the end and He stones them from heaven. With stones the weight of a talent. We talked about some say that's 8 to 10 pounds. Some say it's 100 pounds like the ancient talent, heavy talent used in Syria and Israel. Regardless, I mean, 10 pound hailstone from heaven, probably all you need. Whether it's 10 or 100 pounds, a veritable rain of bowling balls is a horrendous judgment. And men still blaspheme. They still blaspheme. In this description of the seventh vile judgment, whereby the title deed of the earth, proving that the Redeemer of Christ, the Lamb, is worthy to take possession of this earth because He purchased it back, it's laid open. The earth is ready to claim, and we'll see Him return to claim it in chapter 19. But in the midst of this judgment, we're told in chapter 16, verse 19, Great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of His wrath. We see a pronouncement of what has already been announced Back in chapter 14, verse 8, it says, And there followed another angel. Remember the three angelic messengers saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. So we have an announcement of Babylon's doom. Babylon, one who's pictured drunk with the wine of wrath who's caused the nations to commit fornication with her. Her doom is announced, and then with the second trump, seventh vial, excuse me, which is the seventh trumpet, which is the seventh seal, the doom is pronounced. She came into remembrance. There's a great earthquake. The cities of the nations fall. It is done. 
When we get to chapter 17, what we have is an aside. The narrative pauses, and then we have a detailed explanation about what that announcement and that of chapter 14 and that pronouncement of chapter 16 actually mean. What it actually involves. What does it mean that Babylon came in remembrance before God? That's chapter 17 and 18. Now this has been the um, pattern throughout Revelation. We came to chapter 7 where we have a pause. While the sealed judgments are taking place, John zooms out to show God at work behind the scenes. The, the 144,000 Jewish witnesses, the great Gentile revival involving Gentiles who had never clearly heard the gospel. We get to chapter 10, we see Jesus, the Messiah, pictured as a mighty angel as he appears on behalf of the people of Israel, like he appeared in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord. We see him uh, come down with the title deed of the earth. This is what's happening. God is accomplishing His will through these judgments. Then we get to into chapter 11. We see the aside about the tribulation temple and about the two witnesses, fulfillment of Zechariah's vision that would preach the truth in these dark days in Jerusalem. And then their martyrdom and their resurrection coincides with the end of the sixth trumpet judgment. Then we have a little more chronology and then in chapters 12 through 15 verse 5 we have another aside whereby the major players of this time of tribulation are described. We've got Michael the archangel as he stands in behalf of Israel, the remnant of Israel's seed, the man-child, Messiah. We've got uh, the Antichrist, we've got the dragon, the beast, Uh, we've got the uh, false prophet. So we've got these personages described and then the narrative advances some more. And now we come to another aside whereby the destruction, the remembrance before God of Babylon to give unto her the wrath of God's fierceness is described in detail. Back when we looked at this in chapter 14, I talked about how Babylon more than anything symbolizes the world system. The literal city of Babylon has not been rebuilt. It's been unearthed. The ruins can be visited in modern day Iraq. But the city itself has not been rebuilt. It may be rebuilt. But the system that Babylon gave to the world going all the way back to the days of Nimrod and the Tower of Babel endures today. The world system. And we talked about the, how the world system has two elements. It always has a religious element and it has a commercial element. We see this in chapter 14 when this announcement is made. Babylon has fallen, that great city. There's the commercial element. Because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. That's the idolatrous or the spiritual element. We traced the world system back when I preached in chapter 14. We started with Cain. We saw saw how pre-flood Cain introduced the city into human history. And Cain was a picture. The Bible warns about the way of Cain. What was the way of Cain? In terms of one's relationship with God, it was pragmatism. God required a blood sacrifice, but Cain said, Hey, 
I'm a farmer. I'm going to worship God my own way. I'm going to bring him an offering from the fruit of the ground. Cain thought we could choose to worship God whatever way we want to and God will be pleased with it. That's man-made religion today. So many in the church today say, well, you know, I'm just going to worship God the way I want to. Uh, You don't come to God on your terms. People never have. You come to God on His terms. And God's terms are Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There is no other way. You know, we got churches this, you know, this, uh, these days that are affirming these things God calls abomination. We have churches in this community that celebrate that stuff. You know, we have you know, churches now, I read an article recently about a church has decided that they're going to remove all ref- gender references to God in the Scriptures in their liturgy when they read the Scriptures. They're going to remove those references because um, we don't want to offend anyone. So we're just going to deny what the Bible says and we're going to change it. In fact, the man, the so-called pastor or vicar or whatever the heck he was, was quoted saying, we're not taking anything away from God's Word. We're just adding something good to it. And then I thought about what's written here at the end of Revelation, that those who add to God's Word, God's going to add the plagues written in this book. The blind leading the blind, as Jesus said, and both of them end up falling in a ditch. But we traced the world system from Cain all the way up through the great Gentile kingdoms as symbolized by the seven heads of the beast. We'll see those seven heads pop up again here in Revelation 17. And we, transla- uh, we traced it all the way down to Antichrist. I don't want to do that again. But we're here in chapter 17, and the question is this. Chapter 17 focuses on one vision... And then chapter 18 involves something else. We have the name Babylon used in both chapters. The great question is, are there two Babylons being judged here? Both of them involving revival from some sort of dormancy? Or is this one and the same? Is this the judgment against the world system? It's religious element, chapter 17... And the first half of the tribulation is judged, and then its commercial element in chapter 18 judged in the second half. Is it one and the same? And thereby, whether or not the literal city of Babylon is rebuilt is inconsequential. There's a couple of things that are interesting to note. In chapter 17, you have one of the angels which was holding the vile judgments. One of the angels of the seven vile judgments steps out of his role as of his role pouring out the vial of God's judgment to come and explain some things to John. He steps out of that role to explain. That's further evidence that what we have here is an aside. The angel steps out of his role and pouring out God's judgment to explain something in detail to John. What he shows John according to verse 16 is destroyed. It's made desolate and naked. Its flesh is eaten and it's burnt with fire. In chapter 17, this is called Mystery Babylon. We have Mystery Babylon being destroyed. And this is shown to John by one of the angels holding the vials of judgment. But when you get to chapter 18, we see just Babylon. Not Mystery Babylon, but Babylon. 
And this happens, chapter 18, verse 1, after these things. So after what John saw in chapter 17, he sees chapter 18. And it doesn't involve the same angelic messenger. This time he sees another angel come down from heaven. Having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory, and he cried mightily, Babylon is fallen. Perhaps this is the same angel from chapter 14 that made the announcement. Flying through heaven, now he lights upon the earth. So we have two different angels. What we see is utter destruction of the city of Babylon in chapter 18. Or, or what's called Babylon. And in chapter 17, we see what's called mystery Babylon, made desolate, naked, and burned with fire. Are we talking about the same thing? Two elements thereof? Or is this two different Babylons? There are those who write good commentaries on the book of Revelation. Solid. Clarence Larkin, we've referred to a lot before. He wrote in the early 1900s before Israel even became a nation. And yet saw things and predicted things in the Scriptures, interpreted the Scriptures in such a way that we saw fulfilled in the middle part of the 20th century. He believed the Scriptures were true and accurate and could be trusted to the very letter. He teaches this to be two Babylons. The religious Babylon, which he would say is manifested in the Roman Catholic Church, which will play a key role in ushering Antichrist in the power. And then commercial Babylon will be the commercial system over which Antichrist is the head, which is the fulfillment of commercialism in this world, involves the mark of the beast, and it will involve a literal rebuilding of the city of Babylon that will be a capital in the last days. Sounds good. I don't know. What I do know is this. Turn to Isaiah 13. When we think about Babylon, the ancient city, what it represented... The Old Testament prophesies against it. It prophesies very clearly against Babylon. In many places. That she will be destroyed and she'll never rise again. Isaiah 13, starting at verse 19, is one example. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldees' excellency. Daniel's Gentile kingdoms. Nebuchadnezzar saw that vision in chapter 2. That great statue that represented the Gentile kingdoms. Babylon was the head of gold. The head of gold. A great kingdom that arose out of the dust. Quite quickly. That concentrated its power. Never has there been power concentrated as it was in Babylon of ancient times. Behold, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldees, excellent, shall be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. It shall never be inhabited, neither shall it be dwelt in from generation to generation, neither shall the Arabian pitch tent there, neither shall the shepherds make their fold there. But wild beasts of the desert shall lie there, and their houses shall be full of doleful creatures." And owls shall dwell there, and satires shall dance there. That word satire is interesting. It comes from a Hebrew word that literally means a hairy or a shaggy devil or a demon. Mm -hmm. 
And that's the Greek word satire. And that satire is, is found in Greek mythology. It was a goat, hairy, shaggy devil that walked around on two legs. Friends, there is a spiritual world. There is demons and devils. In fact, when you read the legends, you know, people make fun of stuff nowadays like Bigfoot and Sasquatch and all this stuff. The Native Americans that wrote about this didn't talk about a primate or an animal. What they described was a devil. You know, societies that worship devils have encounters with devils. When you invite them in, they manifest themselves. We see this all over the world serving the Lord in dark corners. But Babylon here is a place where the satires, the shaggy demons dwell. I would say, my personal opinion, that this is, the Bible teaches there is a Sasquatch. It's not a Bigfoot, it's not a primate, it's a devil that deceives people. It's a shaggy demon. Just like the ancients talked about dragons and things like that. I mean, they didn't just make this stuff up. There are accounts that are disregarded because they don't fit the evolution paradigm. There are accounts, Roman accounts, of Roman legions going up against creatures that don't fit our modern day perception. There's more to this earth and this world than the naked eye. We haven't figured it all out contrary to our pride. Notwithstanding, and the wild beasts of the islands shall cry in their desolate houses and the dragons in their pleasant places. The word dinosaur was invented in the middle 1800s. Dinosaurs are in the Bible. They're called dragons. It's that simple. In their pleasant places, and her time is near to come and her days shall not be prolonged. So we have the destruction of Babylon prophesied. And it's prophesied... And compared to the destruction God carried out against Sodom and Gomorrah. How was Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed? In an instant. And there's nothing there. If you go to that part of the world today, it's in the Dead Sea. There's nothing. Nobody lives there. It's just salt pits. I mean, I don't even think you could walk out to the old side of Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm not even sure if it's on the Israel or the Jordanian side of the border. Some have claimed to have found a site. There are things that almost like the salt formations are kind of strange out there. They kind of almost look like they could have been something at one time. But God overthrew it. In fact, in the Millennial Kingdom, all of those areas around the Dead Sea will be healed. We talked about the Dead Sea. That earthquake will change the geography and the Dead Sea will rise. And as a result, it will flow out into the Red Sea and then a water of life will come from the temple and those waters will be healed. And what's a desert today at En Gedi will be a place for fishermen to spread their nets. But if you read that same, those same scriptures there, say that the salt pits will stay as they are. They won't be healed. The salt pits will stay that way in the millennium. Why? It, it remains as, a, as, a, as a, a picture of God's judgment on sin. In fact, Sodom and Gomorrah, we are told, was carried out as an example to men of all generations about how God considers and deals with wickedness. The sin of Sodom and Gomorrah brought God's judgment. And then that judgment is preserved to show and teach the world how God views the sin that they committed. And yet today, 
We say God's okay with that. Mm-hmm. Sodom and Gomorrah tells us what God thinks. This is before Moses and the law, what God thinks about homosexuality. I didn't write it. Mm-hmm. The sin of Sodom wasn't a lack of hospitality. That's where sin starts. Idle hands, selfishness, no hospitality. No accountability. That morphs into all kinds of sin and it ultimately manifests itself in abomination. But the sin is clear when you read the account and the destruction was instant. So much so that the salt pits where that was located will remain and won't even be healed during the millennium. So it was an instant judgment. The Bible tells us that Babylon's judgment will be like that, like Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, when you look at the history of Babylon, we've talked about how in... A.D., I mean, I'm sorry, B.C. 538, Belshazzar's Feast, Daniel chapter 5. The city was overtaken by the Persians. And the Babylonian Empire, Nebuchadnezzar, the head of gold, passed into history. And he was succeeded, just like Daniel prophesied, by the breast of silver, or the second beast, in Daniel chapter 7. The Medes and the Persians. When you look back at how Babylon was overtaken, the, the, the Euphrates River was rerouted, the people were partying inside, and that particular night, the guards forgot to lock the gate, and so the Persians just snuck in the city. And in fact, a couple of days went by before people living in the city even knew that King Belshazzar was dead and that the Persians were in control. I mean, they just took it like that, to where even people living inside didn't even know what happened. That wasn't like Sodom and Gomorrah. And of course, we see the city of Babylon endure under Persia. Mm -hmm. Daniel's there. We have Darius the Mede come and take over. Cyrus. Later, we have Alexander the Great comes to Babylon and leaves, puts someone in government there. And then over a period of time, we have protracted judgment whereby Babylon becomes less and less and less significant. Today, it's a world heritage site. The ruins are there. There's, there is um, uh, archaeology that takes place there. And there are people that go camp out there and study the ruins. But the Bible says that the Arabian won't even pitch his tent there. That it'll be a place of doleful creatures. The question is, has this been fulfilled? I don't think so. In the 5th century, I mean, Peter the Apostle, when he wrote his epistles in the 1st century A.D., addressed them to Jews living in Babylon. Now, the Catholic Church says that Babylon was a code word for Rome. Well, there's no evidence for that whatsoever. Peter was the Apostle to the Jews, not the Gentiles. That was Paul. So, If Peter were the first pope, like the Catholics say, then he would have been disobedient to his commission. He was writing to Jews in Babylon. As late as the 5th century A.D., a church historian said that Babylon still is a city, but its population is almost 100% Jews. So even as late as the 5th century, it was a place where the Jews basically stayed behind and lived and everybody else went somewhere else. So people were living there... It was inhabited as late as the 5th century A.D. If 
If you look at Jeremiah chapter 50. Jeremiah chapter 50 verse 40. As God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah and the neighbor cities thereof, saith the Lord, so shall no man abide there, neither shall any son of man dwell there. And if you look at the greater context, he's talking about Babylon. So, these things have not been... They don't seem to have been fulfilled if we want to compare it to Sodom and Gomorrah. So therefore, the fulfillment of prophecies like this must await the future. And therefore, there are those who say, Babylon must be rebuilt for Isaiah and Jeremiah's prophecies to be fulfilled. And what they prophesy will be seen in the millennium, just like the salt pits there around the Dead Sea. Makes a lot of sense. Could Babylon be rebuilt? Absolutely. Could it be rebuilt quickly? Could the world scene change so quickly when something that seems unlikely actually comes to pass? Yeah. When we look at chapter 17, we're going to see descriptions here that both historically and literally portray what we see in Roman Catholicism. There is no denying it. Even to the point where John sees this whore sitting on a beast with with seven heads, and he says those seven heads are seven hills upon which the whore sits. In John's day when he wrote, Eternal Rome, the city on seven hills. I mean, how can we deny that historic context? Then we have mystery Babylon. Obviously there's a mystery here. It's not literal or the word mystery wouldn't be used. We see how she's decked in purple and scarlet with a golden cup. Who doesn't know that the colors of the papacy are purple and scarlet? Who doesn't know that? You know, we've got coins in Roman Catholic history that were minted showing the very scene described here. But does the Roman Catholic Church have the influence and the power of the earth today that it did in the Middle Ages? Is it possible that this entity will have such power and influence? Doesn't look likely. But when it comes to God's prophecy, what seems so unlikely is always suddenly fulfilled. Proving that God is who He says He is. So, you know, we could have all learned a lesson back in 1991. The, very, the Lord's been good to me. I've been able to travel to more than 50 countries. I got to travel internationally very young. A lot of people don't get to do that. I'm not talking about crossing the border into Canada, although my grandparents took me across the border to Canada when I was young. But the first overseas travel I did wasn't a mission trip. It was actually to the Soviet Union. I was 15 years old. I went to the Soviet Union, the great enemy of America. And when I went to the Soviet Union, the Berlin Wall still stood. Communism was the enemy of America. There was always that underlying threat of nuclear war. America had enough nuclear weapons to destroy the planet. Russia had enough nuclear weapons. The hope was that mutual assured destruction was a deterrent from anything happening. And it worked. That mutual assurance is not there anymore when rogue states have nuclear weapons. But man can't destroy what God created. There's five things God, or four things God says He created and He preserves. 
the earth, his word, the church, and the nation of Israel. Mm -hmm. So no matter what man says or thinks he can do, you can't destroy what God preserved. But notwithstanding, I had the privilege of going to the Soviet Union. And it was the summer of 91. When I was there, I was in Red Square. I was in Moscow. I went to several other cities that are now too dangerous to go to. Places in the eastern Ukraine where they've had war in recent years. Rostov-on-Don, Kharkov, other places. And communism seemed strong. There were great statues of Lenin and Stalin everywhere. Red Square was just like it was depicted or I had seen in the, in the newspapers or in the news or the history books. The, 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 um, the, the overall demeanor of the people and the atmosphere was just like what I had seen portrayed in Rocky IV when he went to train in Russia. And the snow was falling, all them soldiers were standing there. So a communism was strong. It wasn't going anywhere. We were there for about a month. I came home. Three weeks later, I'm watching the news. And the hotel we stayed in in Moscow had a missile through the front of it. And suddenly, out of nowhere, the Soviet Union fell. It was broken up. Became independent nations. <coughs> out of nowhere. I mean, it didn't, nobody was talking about that when I was there. <laughs> didn't look like that at all. And then suddenly the great Soviet bear crumbled and fell. And we've seen what's come out of that's different than what was there before. And Russia doesn't have the power that was consolidated in the Soviet Union and its allies. And then after that you saw the Berlin Wall fall. These things didn't seem possible. Highly improbable as latest three weeks before it happened. And yet it happened. That event in our lifetime ought to tell us that what we see written here could happen very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. And we ought not put our trust and hope in man-made structures built upon a foundation of sand. The only hope we have is a foundation founded upon the rock. And as Paul said, that rock is Jesus Christ. These things, though unlikely and improbable, can suddenly reappear and reassert themselves. The city of Babylon's long been dormant. The power and the influence of Catholicism seems weak compared to what it used to be. I mean, the Pope used to tell kings what to do, and they he said how jump, and they'd ask how high. The greatest enemy of the biblical Christian throughout all of history has not been Islam. Muslims have killed more Muslims than they have Christians. The greatest enemy of the Bible believer throughout all of human history is the Roman Catholic Church. 50 million Bible believers butchered in the name of the Catholic Jesus between A.D. 500 and A.D. 1500. The records are rife. And in fact, when you read church history, up until the Reformation, a lot of church history books are based on Catholic history. When you see the word heretic, you need to take note because that probably means Bible believer. Because those preaching, translating, teaching the Bible, teaching Bible Jesus... Bible Jesus isn't the same as Catholic Jesus. Mormon Jesus and Bible Jesus, they're different. This idea that they're the same, somebody's not read the Scriptures. Or somebody's not read what the Catholic Church and the Mormon Church clearly teaches in its own writings. But that influence, that power seems to have waned. The Pope today looks like a fool going around talking about Muslims and uh, having peace with Muslims and... Uh, 
uh, uh, climate change and all this. He's kind of a laughing stock. Is it really possible that the power associated that used to be in that church could reassert itself? It could. Absolutely. When you think about an entity being drunk with the blood of the saints, there's no other entity in human history drunken to that degree than Catholicism. Nobody's butchered or martyred more saints than Rome. Rome crucified Jesus. All the popes were were those that took the purple cape of the emperors and threw some Christian lingo in there and made it a religious thing and then didn't just control a country but controlled countries through religion. That's what the world system's done from day one, used religion to control men. A lot of the things we see in Catholic doctrine, the confession, the rosary, the concept of the mother of God, all of these things go back to Babylonian paganism. They were taught in ancient Babylon. Even the very symbols and vestments worn by the priests have their roots in ancient Babylonian paganism. When Babylon was overthrown, the paganism endured. It moved with the Adelin kings over uh, to the west. We talked about Pergamus being the seat of Satan. And that was absorbed into the Roman Empire and later made its way to Rome itself. So these are connected somehow. But when we look at these prophecies, I would have to say that you almost have to say the city has to be rebuilt. You almost have to say that the the power and influence, most of which is underground today, that the Roman church once held will be resurrected. And based on what we saw with the Soviet Union, my friends, these things can happen real quickly. Things can change quick. There's an interesting prophecy I want to look at that I've always kind of been wondered what was going on here. And as I was preparing for this message, it was almost like a light came on. Turn to Zechariah. And by the time we're done with this study on Revelation, I, I'd venture to say we visited every book of the Bible, not once, not twice, but three times at least. We've been in Zechariah a lot. In the first six chapters, we have nine visions that the prophet sees. And these nine visions concern events that happen in the context of the day of the Lord, the last days. With some of these, we see a type fulfilled soon thereafter that in turn points to an anti-type or an ultimate fulfillment. We've already looked at the sixth of these nine visions, chapter 4, when we were talking about Revelation 11, the two witnesses that stand before the Lord of the earth, the type of which were Zerubbabel and Joshua, ultimately fulfilled in Moses and Elijah, and the, the, uh, the role God has prepared for them in the last days. We talked about this chapter, remember, days of small things, when we, when we had those sermons on Advent, during the Christmas season a couple years ago, looking at messianic prophecy, how we should not despise the day of small things. Little things often make a huge difference. Don't despise the encounters you may have tomorrow. Everything's an opportunity. I was reading something to my children. Um, I've been reading. There's a book. It's a classic book. It's called Eternity in Their Hearts. It was written by a missionary named, I think Don Richardson was his name, but he talked about how in a lot of these cultures, there are references like what Paul saw in the Greeks, the unknown God, things that 
alluded to biblical truth that the people once knew, but they had turned away from it. And he was talking about this tribe in Ethiopia that they used to talk about this true God, the one true God, the Creator. But over the years, it became this idea that we really can't know Him, but we got these devil spirits that are always giving us problems, so we may as well try to appease them because we can't know this Creator. I think this was in the 1900s, 1940s, 1930s maybe. Anyway, there, was, there began to be some more talk in this tribe about this true God. And there were a couple men there in the village. One began to have a vision where he would see, he was told that these messengers would come, white-skinned. You know, there's a lot of, uh, in, the book uses an encouraging word, I mean an, an interesting word called, called casophobia, fear of the white man. We see a lot of that today. But that these messengers would come and they would come and sleep under a sycamore tree and then suddenly he saw his village full of these structures with shiny roofs. And he had this dream multiple times that said, these men will come and tell you about this creator God you've forgotten about. And then then some of the men, some of the the, the witch doctors and stuff in the village began to say the same thing. And they waited and they waited and they waited and never saw anything. Well, eight years later, there were these two white missionaries that wanted to come and reach this people. But they were discouraged from asking permission from the Ethiopian government to go in and ask because there's no way because of the politics they were going to be allowed to go in there. So they were told, why don't you seek permission to go to this village that's on the literal edge of this tribal people's settlement area? And you're more likely to get permission to go in there. And then maybe at some point in the future, you can get in there. But if you try to get permission to go into this region, they're just going to kick you out of the country. So these guys were real discouraged. But they followed the advice they were given and they sought permission to go and, 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 and stay in this, this village on the edge of this civilization. Well, one day, this man who had dreams heard a rumbling he'd never heard before. And he went out to sea, and these, this jeep came over the hill. And it had been real hot, and these guys were looking for a place to camp. And they needed shade desperately, and lo and behold, there was this giant sycamore tree. He said, why don't we throw up our tents there? So these two missionaries threw up their tents. Well, this man was like, wait a minute, what's going on here? Is this what, what I was told? And he ran out to meet him. Anyway, long story short, uh, a few decades later, there were more than 200 churches planted in this area. And something so small as putting up a tent under a sycamore tree ended up, proven, ended up being used by God to bring the gospel in. Those men went in there and recognized that this unknown God they talked about, they recognized Him just like Paul did in Athens on Mars Hill. Days of small things. You never know how God will use you today. So we've already talked about these visions here in Zechariah. But today I want to look at the eighth of the nine visions. Because I think it relates to what we're talking about as we try to get a foothold of understanding before we dive into chapter 17 and 18. So this is the eighth 
of nine visions that are given in succession to Zechariah the prophet. He wrote about 20, at least 20 years after the fall of Babylon to the Persians. At least. So this was with the remnant that returned from Babylon to rebuild the temple. Zechariah was a prophet. So this was at least 20 years after the sack of Babylon by the Persians. And he says, Then the angel, verse 5, chapter 5, that talked with me went forth and said unto me, Lift up now thine eyes and see what is this that goeth forth. And I said, What is it? And he said, This is an ephah that goeth forth. An ephah was the largest measure of dry weight or volume in the Hebrew system of weights and measures. If you look back at the Mosaic Law, it talks about a lot of different offerings, and it talks about the people bringing a tenth of an ephah of flour as a free will offering, or as part of a sin offering, or those that couldn't afford in certain circumstances to offer up a lamb or an animal could bring a tenth of an ephah of flour mingled with oil. It was a dry weight measure. Okay? It was the largest dry weight measure a system in a system of weights and measures that's essential to commerce. It was a symbol. Ephah was a symbol of commerce. This is an ephah that goeth forth. And he said, moreover, this is their resemblance through all the earth. That word resemblance there in Hebrew also can mean a spring or a fountain. So you have this symbol of weights and measures that's a symbol of commerce. You have it springing forth and going into all the earth. So you have commercialism that affects the entire world being portrayed here. And behold, there was lifted up a talent of lead. And this is a woman that sitteth in the midst of the ephah. And he said, this is wickedness. And he cast it into the midst of the ephah, and he cast the weight of lead upon the mouth thereof. So you had this ephah that had a top on it, kind of like a manhole cover. It was a talent of lead. You know, another weight and measure that was important in the ancient world of commerce. And inside this ephah was a woman described as wickedness. And what the prophet saw was the woman lifts up that cover and peeks her head out. Peeks her head out. And instead, that lead is taken. Um, uh, that, that angel takes that lead and pushes that woman back down in that ephah. It's not time for her to come out yet. She's going to stay in there. And then I lifted up mine eyes and looked, verse 9, and behold, there came out two women, and the wind was in their wings. For they had wings like the wings of a stork. Now, there's only one place in the Scriptures where we see women with wings. And it's in a place where the Bible says, this is wickedness. So these portrayals of angels that we celebrate, women with wings, that's not biblical angels. That happens once in the Scriptures. This is wickedness. Yeah, a lot of that imagery we use nowadays comes from Catholicism, which comes from Babylonian paganism. Angels are not women with wings. 
The only heavenly creatures that we see with wings, per se, are the cherubs and the seraphs that surround God's throne. And we know that Satan used to be one of those cherubs. The anointed cherub who fell. The difference between an angel and a cherub. The angels that are portrayed are in the likeness of men. Sometimes they glow and shine. They can move quickly. They can appear suddenly. But they're not portrayed as women with wings. What we see here is wickedness. Women with wings, like wings of a stork. And it says, they lifted up the ephah between the heaven and the earth. Then I said to the angel that talked with me, where or whither do these bear the ephah? Where are they taking it? And he said unto me, to build it and house in the land of Shinar. And it shall be established and set there upon her own base. So this ephah was trying to get out. Nope, not time yet. Stick her back down in there. They're taking it between heaven and earth. Where are they taking it? They're going to take it and they're going to use it to build a house in the land of Shinar. What's the land of Shinar? What happened in the plain of Shinar in Genesis chapter uh, 11? Tower of Babel. Who founded Babel? Nimrod, the mighty hunter between, uh, of the Lord, that wicked king who also founded Akkad and Colne and those other ancient cities and Assyria. The men gathered together to overthrow God in the plain of Shinar. Babylon was in the plain of Shinar. That's Babylon. And here we're told in a, in a context of prophecies all pointing to the last days that a house is going to be built in the land of Shinar. And it's tied to commercialism and a commercialism that influences the whole world. The woman in the midst tries to get out. The angel pushes the lead down over her and replaces that lid. The word stork here, that's interesting. The stork in Hebrew was considered an unclean bird. In fact, the word for stork is chasida. It's a feminine form that's very similar to the word we see chasid. In fact, if you go to Psalm 16.10 that I quoted earlier, Thou wilt not leave thine, uh, my soul in hell, thou wilt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. That's a prophecy of Messiah's resurrection. And Messiah is called the Holy One of God. That word used there is chasid ka, your holy one. So it's the same root as the word here for stork. Chasida. And so the stork, it, it also means pious. Pious is usually meant to mean someone that has a countenance of morality and righteousness, but it's fake. It's cloaking who they really are. There's a lot of people out there that seem so spiritual, but they're really not. The bird was considered an unclean, pious bird. And what's interesting is uh, an illustration of this you can see with Judaism. You ever heard of the Hasidic Jews? Come from Europe. The pious Jews that look like a bunch of penguins walking around with the black and white. That talk about being so righteous and you can't, you can't have uh, meat and milk together. And you've got to have two separate kitchens and you've got to do all this stuff. And we're so righteous. But yet behind the scenes it's gathering what? What are they always seeking to get? Money. 
boy, they know how to make it. There's a lot of deception. (laughs) Same word, Hasidic Jews. I mean, biblical, biblical Judaism, which is the foundation of the gospel, and rabbinic Judaism are two totally different things. I mean, don't mistake me. I love the Jewish people. The ministry that I'm engaged in goes first to the Jewish people. But I'm not going to hide the truth about what their rabbis teach. And this Hasidism and all this stuff is wicked. And it's nothing Bible about it. But it's this idea of piousness and religion as a means to assimilate wealth. I mean, men have used religion to assimilate wealth for centuries. I mean, that's what the popes did. That's what Islam does today. That's what the Buddhist monks we think are so peaceful over in Asia do. These guys walk around with robes and bald heads, have like 10 or 12 cars. You know, the Dalai Lama wants us to think he's so, he's, uh, you know, just, he, he doesn't depend on anything and he's just so, he's denying himself all these things. Come on, give me a break. Ask the Christians that try to live under the darkness of Tibetan Buddhism. There was a so-called guru in India by the name of, uh, what was his name? He had a big afro. Sayababa. And you used to see pictures of him in all these shops and everything. Well, he died not long ago. And he was one of these ones that went around preaching, you know, deny yourself worldly pleasures and you don't need any of this and help me spread my message. Well, anyway, he died... And they found that his home and his room was, he had hoarded like all this gold and silver and all these riches. A complete fraud. Mm-hmm. I mean, you should have looked at the guy's hairdo and figured out he was a fraud. I mean, who walks around with an afro this big? But anyway, people still worship the guy and he's dead. And when that news came out, they refused to believe, and they still worship him and they still have pictures of him. I saw a picture of the Sai Baba in some shop in Nepal when I was over there back in November. But men have long used religion to assimilate wealth. I mean, that's what man-made religion does. And so all of this imagery right here is not coincidental. The word here, to build a house in the land of Shinar, this is the Hebrew verb, bana. I'm actually teaching myself Modern Hebrew, and that's the word you use to rebuild something. Banah. It's the Hebrew verb. So it, it, the, the connotation there is not to build from nothing, but to rebuild what used to be there. A house in the center of the land of Shinar. So what we have here is a secret kept under ropes for some time, and then it's let out in the land of Shinar and established on her own base. So, it seems as if we have a prophecy here of the sudden rebuilding of something that's lied dormant for many years in the last days. And that rebuilding, that ephah, will involve worldwide commercialism that controls the planet. What's the time frame? Well, the time frame goes back to Isaiah 13 where it's prophesying the destruction of Babylon. The full destruction. Isaiah 13, 9 and 10. When is this going to happen? Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, cruel both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and He shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. 
For the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. The sun shall be darkened in his going forth and the moon shall not cause her light to shine and I will punish the world for their evil and the wicked for their iniquity. <laughs> That's the time we're reading about in Revelation. That's almost word for word for what we've seen in Revelation. So, where are we at? Revelation 17 and 18, do we have two separate entities? Or one with two elements? Do we have a literal rebuilding of the city of Babylon? Is Roman Catholicism involved? Is Roman Catholicism the vehicle whereby the Antichrist assumes power? And then he turns on those that brought him into power and devours them and then sets up a capital in Babylon? Seems to be what's going on. There's definitely overlap between the two chapters. Like I said, is the religious element a springboard to rebuilding or reviving the commercial center? At the end of the day, I don't know. I don't know. I don't have all the answers. I've never claimed to be able to interpret all these prophecies. What I can tell you is when God does what He says He's going to do, it will, we will look back and see that He fulfilled it to the very letter. Maybe in a way we can't even comprehend right now. I am not afraid to stand here and say, I don't know exactly what all this means that we're going to read about in chapter 17 and 18. I don't know. But that's why we're to do what Paul told Timothy to do. Study to show thyself approved unto God. A workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That means letting Scripture interpret Scripture. And that also means that we don't deny the historic context in which we're reading. And then it goes on in the next verse that is linked to this. We're not just to study and rightly divide this word of truth, but shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness. There's more profane and vain babblings in the church today than there's ever been. Guys in seminary are called us sitting up all night arguing about Calvinism and Arminianism. That's profane babbling. Those talking about this or that. Those trying to argue or prove God with an atheist. That's profane babbling. I mean, the Bible says an atheist is a fool twice. Mm-hmm. Psalm 14, Psalm 53. So how can you make any sense with a fool? Answer not a fool according to his folly. Unless you'd be just like him. I don't know. But that's why we need to study. That's why we need to rightly divide the word of truth. That's why we need to stay away and not be distracted by profane and vain babblings. Just give me a few more minutes. I I, I thought I was going to be in a place where I wouldn't be able to preach very much. I wasn't prepared. But as we get into these chapters, we need to be reminded of the nature of biblical prophecy. Biblical prophecy is not like man-made prophecy. You know, man-made prophecy is very general. You know, if, the, if there is any prophecy in the Quran, which there's no detailed prophecy. In fact, I would say that the word prophet and the name Muhammad, they don't belong in the same sentence. Because if there's anything the guy predicted, it was what had already been written down in the Old Testament Scriptures. He just plagiarized it. And it sure is not detailed. Prophecy, man-made prophecy is not detailed. It can't be. Biblical prophecy is very detailed. 
It's got types and anti-types. It's got a shadow fulfillment and an ultimate. We've talked about all this. Isaiah chapter 7 is the biggest proof of that. It's dual. There are types of immediate fulfillment, historical fulfillment, that all point to an anti-type. Ezekiel 28 is a primary example of that. Ezekiel 28, Tyre in the worldwide commercial system. Its destruction is prophesied. It's lamented. Its prince is judged and its king is judged. But what we see is that the prince and the king of Tyre at the time that Ezekiel wrote. In fact, what happens to Tyre in those chapters in Ezekiel happens historically only a matter of weeks after the prophecy is written. And, but yet we see it telescope to Antichrist. The prince of Tyre is a type of Antichrist. The king of Tyre is a type of Satan. He's talked about being in Eden in the garden of God, the anointed cherub. We often see telescoping where the prophet is prophesying something in the near future or something we've seen fulfilled historically and then suddenly he telescopes to the end of time. And it's very clear. We don't have to guess where this telescoping occurs. It's very clear. We've talked about it in Daniel 8. He's talking about the history of the king of the north and the south, and then he immediately telescopes to the time of the end. And we have a king of fierce countenance against whom the king of the north and the king of the south come. It's Antichrist. We see it in Daniel chapter... Or that's Daniel chapter 8 with the rough goat and the... And the, and the, and the um, the, the prophecies of Persia and Greece, and then Daniel chapter 11 as well. We see it in Luke chapter 21. Jesus is telling the Jews that when they see Jerusalem surrounded with armies, they need to flee. It's not like Matthew where he's preaching that same sermon elsewhere. He talks about when you see the abomination of desolation. He tells in Luke, when you see Jerusalem surrounded with armies, flee. And at that time, you're going to be scattered throughout the nations and Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the time the Gentiles is fulfilled. And then it immediately telescopes to the end of the days with the signs in the heavens. Well, the, Jerusalem was surrounded by armies in A.D. 70 when the Romans destroyed the city and sacked it. So with Luke's record, Jesus preached, when Jesus preached, He preached the same messages over and over and emphasized different things. But He emphasizes the immediate fulfillment and then telescopes to the end. And Matthew, he concentrates on the end. So, you know, we're foolish to think that Jesus didn't preach the same things over and over and sometimes emphasize different points. I mean, John said, if I wrote down everything Jesus did, I, there wouldn't be enough books in the world to contain it. So we see this. This is common. And when we look at biblical prophecy, its ultimate fulfillment when it takes place, the prophecies we have seen fulfilled, there have been lots of them, especially involving Messiah's first coming, that we can look historically and see fulfilled. When we look at them, their ultimate fulfillment is always unlikely at the time it happens, and it's very sudden. It's very sudden. So that when it does happen, there are very few that see it. Jesus' first coming is a case in point. When we look back at it, God fulfilled His Word to the letter. To the very day, like I showed you with Daniel chapter 9 and the 70 weeks prophecy. But there were only a few that were looking forward in that day. Simeon and Anna in the temple, Zachariah and Elizabeth, Mary and Joseph, the wise men, only a few. So many missed it. 
That's the nature of biblical prophecy. We can't forget that when we try to interpret these chapters. Dual nature, telescoping, ultimate fulfillment that's unlikely and sudden. Not as it seems, but when it's accomplished, it's exactly as it said all along to the very letter. So we may not be able to interpret this because it's yet future, but we can rest assured based on what God's done already that at the end of the day, exactly what's written here will have been fulfilled. Isaiah 45, why is it important that these things are fulfilled to the very letter? Why? Why are details important with God? The answer's here. Isaiah 40, let's see. I don't think I, I, don't think I wrote down the right chapter. 46, 8 through 10, not 45. Listen to this. This is what distinguishes God from man-made prophecy and the gods of men. Remember this and show yourselves men. In other words, get up on your feet and stand up like a man. Let's talk. Bring it again to mind, you transgressors or you sinners. Stand up like men. Talk to me like a man, God's saying. Then He says, remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me. And what makes God different from everybody else? What makes Him different? The answer is verse 10. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. See, God declares the end from the beginning. He declares in ancient times things that are in distant future. And when it's all said and done, everything He said came to pass. That's what differentiates the Bible from man-made prophecy. Deta- I mean, man-made religion. Detailed prophecy. Over 800 prophecies. 300 of them have been fulfilled. 48 details of Jesus Christ's life prophesied hundreds of years before His birth and were fulfilled exactly as it said. Down to the detail. We can trust that the ones yet unfulfilled will happen just as they said. Israel, 1948, a declaration by the United Nations at the, when, the, when the British mandate expired, given approval by our president, President Truman, who went against the advice of everybody advising him in his cabinet that would have never been recognized without the approval of the United States. Israel was, independence was recognized as a nation. Isaiah 66 says, who's ever heard of such a thing? A nation doesn't exist one day and then the next day it's there. Isaiah 66. I mean, it it was fulfilled exactly like God said. Then God says, should I, shall I bring to the birth and not cause to come forth? Jeremiah, in other places, Ezekiel talks about Israel being regathered as a nation in a state of unbelief. That's where they are now. But God says, shall I bring to the birth and not bring forth? They're gathered in unbelief and one day their eyes will be open to the truth. And they'll be spiritually reborn as a nation. Calling for Messiah at their utter end. So God's already begun to fulfill what He said. And it was exactly, exactly as it was described. Prophecy, prophecy, prophecy. I'll end with this. Let's turn to Matthew 5.18. 
I, I was kind of hoping to get into the, the, the chapters, but we'll consider this a, an introduction to chapters 17 and 18. The judgment of Babylon. Let's just leave with this today. You know, as we're struggling with things in our lives and trials and tribulations that we're facing, we know the end of all things. We're reading about it right now. And so, even if a righteous man gets sick and he dies in that sickness today, God made a promise that He would deliver His people from all their sicknesses and infirmities. Whether or not my Christian brother dies with cancer in this life, God's promise is still fulfilled. Because ultimately, in this millennial kingdom we're going to read about soon, that's fulfilled. There is no sickness for us. No death for eternity. So whether it's here on earth for a time or eternally in heaven, it's fulfilled. We need to think of our eternal life in Jesus Christ as not a future event. When we're born again by grace through faith upon our repentance and sins and trusting in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, as the Bible promises, we have eternal life now. So we don't need to try to differentiate between this life and that life. No, we have eternal life now. This world's not our home. But God's going to do what He says He's going to do. In fact, so much so that Jesus said this in Matthew 5. They were accusing Him of trying to change God's Word or change the law and the prophets. He said, wait a minute. I didn't come to change this. I came to fulfill it. For verily I say unto you, Matthew 5, 18, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. These words he uses here, jot and tittle, especially are meaningful when you study Hebrew. And I'm studying modern Hebrew today. If I'm going to witness to Israelis, I need to speak their language. But the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet is the yod or the jot. It looks like an apostrophe. In fact, if I'm not careful when I'm typing on a Hebrew keyboard, when I got my Hebrew keyboard up, the apostrophe that's used in words that have sounds that are not normal to Hebrew, but they're words that are used nowadays that, like the word taxi. There is no sound like that in Hebrew, so it'll have, the word for taxi is taxi, but it'll have an apostrophe. That's not the yod. I forget what the name of the apostrophe. The yod has a y sound. Like yom is the word for day. Yod, and then uh, vav and mim, yom. So it's, it's the smallest letter. It looks like a curved apostrophe. If you're not careful, you'll miss it. The, word, the, the letter Yod is the first letter in the name for God that we, we translate as Jehovah or we transliterate as Jehovah. Yod, the smallest letter there in the alphabet. A tittle, there are Hebrew, when you write Hebrew, you've got to be careful because there are words that are almost, there are letters that are almost the same, but they're not. If you take what's called the resh or the R sound. It's just a, a curve. The only thing that differentiates a resh or an R sound from a dalit, which is a D sound, is what's called a tittle. Okay? I, I can't really draw it, but a resh is a curve. The tittle is a bar, and it's a little piece hanging off the top with a straight down line. The R doesn't have that little piece. That little piece hanging off the top is called a tittle. That's what tells you it's a D and not an R sound. Very small, but very, very important. So Jesus is saying not, not even the smallest letter or the smallest part of a letter that distinguishes it from other letters will pass away. 
it will all be fulfilled down to the very jot and tittle. We may not see it. We may look back at history and say things weren't fulfilled that way. Like they said about Nineveh for years. And then finally it was discovered in the middle 1800s and exactly what was said took place. We're going to look at two examples of judgment next week where the language used is almost identical to what's used about the great whore. So when we're trying to figure out what this is, we'd be fools not to look at these examples because similar language is used by God. And it was fulfilled in history. We look at Nineveh and we look at Tyre. Tyre is even mocked today. Ezekiel the prophet is mocked today by atheists and fools. I was reading a blog the other day. This guy claiming, you know, I can prove to you the Bible's not God's word. This wasn't fulfilled. And he's just a fool. It's like he can't even read what's written there. But we see it fulfilled, not as it seems, but definitely as it was written. So we're going to look at that a little bit. But just be, as we get into these chapters, I've been dreading 17 and 18. I told you guys this was one of the first commentaries I ever wrote. Revelation 17, 60 pages, years ago. And if I rewrote it today, I would not title it The Judgment of the Great Harlot. I think that's a mistake. That's what the modern Bibles put there. That's not the right word. It's the judgment of the great whore. There's a big difference between a harlot and a whore. A harlot or a prostitute does what they do for gain. Sometimes out of desperation. What a whore does, she does for gain and for lust. And to satisfy her own lust. There's a difference. And what we see here is a religious whore. Not driven to gain out of desperation, but satisfying her lust and pleasures and gain. So I'd change that. But by, by and large, it's pretty consistent with what my studies of Scripture have led me to believe over the years. Nothing's really changed. This is probably, this is over, man, over 20 years old. But um, I wrote this commentary, but it was complicated. And I've dreaded coming to these chapters because I don't really exactly know what it all means. But at the end of the day, we can trust that God's Word is fulfilled. And that ultimately, wickedness and injustice and all the things that vex us, just like Lot. Lot was righteous, and because of that, he was vexed day and night by what he saw going on in Sodom. We're vexed. But one day, it'll all be taken away. We don't have to worry about injustice and unrighteousness and liars in Washington, sequestering our vote, even telling us they accept Jesus in their hearts so they get their vote, get our vote. And we believe Him and then we're betrayed. We're not going to have to worry about that with King Jesus. And part of God's fulfilling His promise to His saints is overthrowing the wicked. And that's what we see here. This world system that has us in bondage. It's put, we're in bondage. Even creation itself groans to be delivered. One day will be overthrown and there'll be no remembrance. And we'll praise God for that. So next week we'll actually get into this. I want to look at Nineveh and Tyre. And then maybe, Lord willing, we can get through these two chapters before I head to South America with my family next month. Lord willing, I'm not going to make any promises. And then the only thing that will remain when I get back is the good stuff. We've been talking about the judgment for a long time, but let's get to the promises. Let's get to the end. It says in Ecclesiastes, better is the end of a matter than the beginning. When trial comes in your life, all you see is the beginning. But better is the end. 
And I'm telling you, the end is far better than what we've seen now. Let's pray, and we'll have a meal together. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I confess that I don't understand it in every place. and uh, Sometimes things get overlooked. I, I try my best. But your word says that um, we're to study your word and rightly divide it, and that your, your spirit can make known unto us the things that are truth. Lord, we do know and trust by faith that your word is true and that as you have done many, many, many times again, we can trust you to do consistently. You say in Malachi that you are a God that does not change. And that's the, that's the reason why Israel is not consumed, because you made promises. And despite her rebellion and rejection of Messiah, she's not consumed. You keep your promises that you made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and to the faithful. And so, Lord, uh, um, we're just like Israel in many ways. So... May we not be haughty, and uh, we're thankful that we can cling to your faithfulness. So, Lord, we just ask that uh, we would be those that trust in your word this week, that we would not be overcome by grief and vexing and anger when we see the world around us, but that we would shine the light of the gospel, that we would love men enough to tell them the truth, love men enough to rebuke them, Lord. True love bids a warning doom to children that play in the freeway. Um, and Lord, we just pray you'd hasten the day that you fulfill your promises. We're thankful that as the church, the bride of Christ, that uh, we've not been appointed unto wrath. And Lord, we just ask that you would have mercy upon uh, our loved ones and those around us who are blind and don't know the truth. I pray that you give them an open heart and that we would be obedient to love them enough to share with them. To speak truth, but to do it like Jesus did, Lord, to have compassion and, and uh, a uh, graciousness. And chutzpah, all, all in one. It's not either or, Lord. It's both and. Lord, we pray you bless the food. Thank you that we could gather here today. And uh, we um, just ask that you would, we, we lift up again the prayer request from the beginning of the service, Lord, that you would have mercy and intervene so that one day we can look back on what looks like a terrible tragedy and actually rejoice. And laugh and say, you know what, God, we wouldn't even be here now if it weren't for that. All this I ask in Jesus' precious name, King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen.